So let me welcome you into week number four of this uh, New Year series where we are spending the first two months of 2024 considering this one incomparable life of Jesus Christ. This is the halfway point of that study, and along the way, working our way from John chapter 1 today to John chapter number 15, we are learning about this life of Jesus, which is the most transformational life uh, in all of human history. Last Sunday, if you were here, you will remember that in the text, we had joined Jesus and the disciples in the upper Room. This is the night of Jesus' arrest. It's his final night on earth. In the next morning, he will be, he will, uh, be crucified uh, by midday. And this is the night when he has gathered with his disciples to celebrate the Passover meal. That's that commemorative meal that celebrates the Old Covenant. And on this night, having celebrated the Old Covenant, he now is going to institute a new covenant in his blood and a commemorative meal that, that uh, would always recall this new covenant, and that is the meal that we call the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table. It's not like the old covenant meal where there's roast lamb and bitter herbs and, and mixed fruit and those things. This is a tiny little meal that we take together at church several times a year. It's that, that meal of bread and, and wine or bread and juice where we remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. This meal was instituted in the upper room where we were last week. You will recall that just before instituting that meal, Jesus did something that seems, if you know who he is, almost unthinkable. He is God in the flesh. And yet, in chapter 13, he washes his disciples' feet. Imagine this, the creator on his knees, robed with a towel like a common household servant, like a slave, on his knees, washing the dirty feet of his disciples. And we know why he did it. The Bible tells us in chapter 13 why he did it. Look at it. Chapter 13, verse 1, the last part of that verse says, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them to the end. And in that expression of his love for them, he serve them by washing their feet. Last Sunday, we considered chapter 14, where he then said to them, let not your heart be troubled, verse one, you believe in God, trust me, in my Father's house are many mansions, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. So Jesus said, I'm gonna take you to the Father's house. If you believe in me, if you're my disciple, then you will live forever with me in heaven. And then, of course, he promised them, as we learned last week, that in the meantime, before we go to the Father's house, in the meantime, that he would use us, that he would listen to our prayers, and that he would always be with us. All of these things we were learning last week in chapters 13 and 14. Now, I want you to take a look at the very last verse of chapter 14. In fact, the last sentence in verse number 31. And notice that Jesus says to his disciples, Arise, let us go from here. So put yourself in the room. Imagine you've had this special Passover meal with Jesus. He's demonstrated his love for you by washing your feet. He's instituted this new covenant meal. He's been talking to you about the Holy Spirit and he's never going to leave you. It's a beautiful scene. All of these things uh, happening. Uh, an intimacy of fellowship between Jesus and his disciples. And then in chapter 14, verse 31, he says, okay, guys, let's go. Let's, let's leave here. 
And so they leave the upper room in chapter 14, verse 1, and we know where they're going. We don't have to wonder where they're going. The Bible tells us where they're going. Look at chapter 18. Turn over to chapter 18 and verse number 1. It tells us in that verse that when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden into which he entered along with his disciples. So we know that Jesus leaves the upper room in chapter 14, verse 31, and he arrives at a garden in chapter 18, verse 1. Do you know what garden that was? Any, any of our campuses? Shout it out if you know it. It's the garden of... Yeah, man, y'all know it. You know it better than the other services. It's the garden of Gethsemane. Now, Gethsemane is the English word which translates the Hebrew which is a combination of two words, which are gat, G-A-T, gat, and shmini. The word gat in Hebrew means the place of the pressing, the place of pressure. And shmini is the word in Hebrew for oil. So it's named, the, the uh, gat shmini, the place of the oil pressing, Gethsemane. And the reason the garden is named that is because in the days of Jesus, this was a working olive orchard. In those days, there were hundreds, many hundreds of olive trees all along the valley and along the slopes of the Mount of Olives, so-called because of the olive trees that were there. And there were dozens of olive presses that were there. So they would gather the olives and they would put them in the presses and they would press the oil out of the olives and they would harvest the olive oil, Gatshmini or Gethsemane. That's where Jesus is going with his disciples. Now here's what that means. If Jesus and his disciples leave uh, the upper room in chapter 14, verse 31, and they arrive in the garden of Gethsemane in chapter 18, verse 1, that means that the dialogue in chapters 15 and 16, and the prayer in chapter 17, all of that occurred on the walk between the upper room and the garden. Now that would have been about a 10 or 15 minute walk down the slopes of Mount Zion, across the Kidron Valley, and into the garden at the base or along the slopes of the Mount of Olives. And along that journey, for 10 or 15 minutes, Jesus is teaching them and speaking to them. And it's very easy to imagine Jesus stopping by an olive tree. Remember, they're everywhere. Stopping by an olive tree and speaking the words of chapter 15. Look at it, verse number 1. Chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Well, where are they? They're coming into, a, into an orchard where there are many vines or trees, olive trees, and this orchard is tended by a husbandman or a gardener. And so you can imagine Jesus stopping, looking around at these trees and saying, guys, I'm like these trees and my father is the gardener. Look at verse number five, chapter 15, verse five. I am the true vine. You are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same will bring forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abides in the vine, no more can you except you abide in me. Can you see Jesus doing this? 
They're walking along. He stops by an olive tree. They don't grow very tall. Olive trees don't. He reaches and pulls a low branch, a tender branch. He pulls it down and says, he says, guys, I'm the true vine. I'm, I'm like the tree. And you, you're like this branch. And in the same way that this branch can never produce an olive, it will never produce an olive unless it abides in the tree trunk, the vine. Even so, you'll never produce fruit unless you abide. You see the beauty of this illustration? If you don't abide in me, you can't produce fruit any more than this branch. If we broke it off, it would never produce any fruit again. So Jesus is teaching his disciples this. And then chapter 18, verse 1 says, they enter into this garden. Now it's in this garden of Gatchmanim. It is in this place of the pressing where Jesus is going to demonstrate his love for his disciples and for us with the greatest act of love that he will perform during his lifetime on the earth. I want to say this again. It is in the Garden of Gethsemane on this very night that Jesus will perform the most profound act of love that he will ever perform in his lifetime. And his disciples are going to know that they are loved. And we're going to know that we're loved. And we'll see it before we finish today. But before we get to that, I want you to listen in the text in John 15 to Jesus' instructions to his disciples about how they are to love one another and how we are to love one another as well. All right, so let's, let's read the text. John chapter 15, beginning in verse number 11. Jesus says, these things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. Stop right there. I have to tell you, that one statement is reason enough for me to want to lean in and listen to what Jesus is saying. If Jesus says, the commands that I'm giving you right now, I'm giving you so that you will have my joy and it will be an abiding permanent, ever-present joy within you. I got to tell you, I'm going to listen because I want that in my life. So I'm going to lean in. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this. Here's the greatest love, that a man would lay down his life for his friends And you are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth, I call you not servants, for the servant doesn't know what his Lord is doing, but I've called you friends. For all the things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. You have not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. And that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Verse 17, these things I command you that you love one another. I want you to look at your neighbor on all of our campuses and tell them, Jesus said it, you gotta love me. Tell them right quickly, Jesus said it, you gotta love me. Now, he did not say, this is my suggestion, did he? Do you see it in verse 12? He didn't say, this is my suggestion to you. If you would be willing on a good day and if people are really nice to you, I want you to love one another. He said, this is my commandment. Write it down. What we find in this passage is the great commandment to love. 
It is his great commandment that we are to love one another. Now, let me tell you what's true, and we all know that this is true. We live, all of us live, in a broken world. Do you agree with that? The world is broken. Well, if the world's broken, who broke it? People broke it. That's who broke it, and we continue to break it because we are broken people. So we are a population of broken people living on a planet that has been broken and living in relationships that because the world is broken and the people within it are broken, then the relationships sometimes are broken or breaking or at least strained and difficult. We live in a broken world. And in the relationships that we have, we know that they're not always easy. Our marriages are not always easy. Sometimes they're, they're downright difficult. Sometimes they break. Uh, relationships with, with other family members, maybe other than a spouse, that can be very difficult. Sometimes relationships with our children or our siblings can be estranged and we go years and years, we don't speak. And sometimes we, we know what it is uh, to have a, a even strained relationships with our friends. Sometimes friendships end and they get severed for various reasons. Relationships are not easy all the time. Sometimes, thankfully, they are. They're beautiful and they, they heal up and God is gracious and we're glad for that. But we know that sometimes they're difficult. We all know what it is to be hurt. Every one of us do. We know what it is that someone that we trusted in disappointed us. We know what it is maybe to be betrayed. These are realities that all of us have experienced. We know sometimes what it is to have somebody who is our enemy or somebody who appears to be our enemy and they just seem like they are out to get us. I'm saying to you that relationships are not always roses, chocolates, and, and flowers, right? Sometimes they're more like sandpaper. And if we're not careful, we can be tempted to respond in this broken world in ways to act or react in ways that don't reflect very well on us. And more importantly, they don't reflect very well on Jesus. Sometimes we want to return evil for evil. Sometimes we think like this, you hit me, I'll hit you harder. And sometimes we celebrate that as the way other people respond. Sometimes we're guilty of returning slander for slander. We're guilty of gossiping instead of praying. We're guilty of holding grudges and being unforgiving. All of these things are true. And yet Jesus says, if we are his disciples, he has given us, he's taught us a better way, a new way to live. We don't have to live that way. That in him, we can live differently. Again, verse 12, verse 17. This is my, not my suggestion, but my commandment that you love one another. He says it back in chapter 13. Turn back one page. Look at chapter 13, verse number 34. He says in that verse, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. He's, he calls it in chapter 13, a new commandment. But the commandment is not really new, is it? In the sense that they had never heard it before. They had heard this command before. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus was approached by a lawyer, not, a, not an attorney, but a, a, an expert in the law. 
And he's asked, and this guy would have known the law better than anybody, but he asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And you remember Jesus said, the greatest commandment is this, that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength, and you are to love your neighbor as yourself. They had heard it before. In fact, when Jesus answered that way, he's quoting the Old Testament. So it's not even just a New Testament concept. It's a kingdom concept that Jesus had taught them in the very beginning of his ministry, in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, Jesus said, you have heard that it's been said, love your brothers, but hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies. It's not, it's, it's not a new command in that they've never heard it before. It's new in the sense of its measure, love as I have loved you. It's new in its sense of obligation because they're kingdom people and kingdom people live differently. And it's even new in the sense of its empowerment. Because remember, he's teaching them, abide in me, and if you'll abide in me, I will do works through you, you'll produce fruit. And what does Galatians 5.22 tell us is the fruit, the first fruit of the Spirit? Is love. So it's, it's new in the sense that he says, love better than you have, love differently than you have, love more fully than you have, and I'm going to empower you to do that. But it's not a new command. In fact, did you know that the command to love goes all the way back to the, to the, uh, uh, the Ten Commandments, and even before that, really? But did you know that the Ten Commandments, at the end of the day, are an expression of how we are to love God and love others. The first four commandments are, are commandments that teach us to love God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no graven images and bow down to them. Uh, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That's four commands in the Decalogue which tell us this is how you love God. And the, the remaining six, they tell us how to love one another. Uh, don't covet, don't steal. Honor your mother and your father. Don't, don't murder. These are commands that tell us how to love one another. All that to say, when Jesus commands them to love, it's not a new commandment in the sense that they've never heard it before, but it is the old commandment renewed and empowered in the new covenant. Now, if y'all tracking with me, if that makes sense, say amen. This is the great commandment. Now, some of you, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, all right, I got it. I got it. I got to love people. Love you, bro. I got it. But what does that really mean? What does it really mean to love one another? Well, Jesus tells us in this passage, he demonstrates and illustrates for us what is the language of love. And I want you to write it down. What we learn in this passage is that the language of love is servanthood. The language, the way we speak love is by serving one another. The language of love is Servanthood. Now, this is, of course, in contradiction to that great philosopher and romantic Pepe Le Pew. Do you remember? <laughs> Do you remember Pepe Le Pew? I love just saying his name, Pepe Le Pew. Of course, Pepe Le Pew believed that French was the love language, but it's not. Jesus teaches us that the language of love is servanthood. In fact, you see this in the fact that Jesus, from chapter 13, verse 1, all the way until he's arrested to the end of his life on, on the earth, he's demonstrating, he's speaking the language of servanthood. He's loving them by serving them. Chapter 13, verse 5, I mentioned he washed their feet as a servant. He's showing them his love. Chapter, four, verse thir uh, verse, chapter 14, verse 3, I'm going 
to prepare a place for you. My work, I'm going to make sure that you have your eternal home. Chapter 14 and verse number 18, I will come again for you and take you home. I'm gonna serve you and get you there. Chapter 18, verses seven and eight, when he's arrested in the garden, when the temple guard comes to arrest him, he says, who are you looking for? And they say, we're looking for Jesus. And he said, I'm he, I'm the one you're looking for. Let these disciples go, leave them alone. He's serving them even as he is being arrested. The point is this, Jesus loved others by serving them. And in the same way, we love others by serving them. When we are loving, we speak that language of love, we display that love for others in our acts of service to them. And when we live in obedience to God's command to love one another, and therefore we serve one another, that serving produces joy within us. I know it's, it's counterintuitive, but when I give my life away in love to serve others, something lifts in my soul and I find joy. This is verse 11, chapter 15, verse 11. Jesus says that when you serve like this, you will find fullness of joy. You will have his abiding joy. In fact, he says the same thing in chapter 13 and verse number 17. After washing the disciples' feet and telling them that they should be willing to wash one another's feet, look at chapter 13, verse 17. He says, if you know these things, happy are you, blessed are you if you do them. We're called to love. Love looks like service. And when we serve one another, we find joy. Here's the equation I want you to live by on all of our campuses. Write it down somewhere. It is that when we have a heart of love, when we're willing to love, and we add to that an attitude or a willingness to serve, then that will result in personal joy. This will always be true. When I love as I'm commanded and I serve to demonstrate that love, it will result in joy. And so I would just say to you, if you're having a hard time finding some joy right now, if you say, you know, there's kind of this dark cloud over my life, there's this shadow over my life, and I don't know, I just kind of lost the joy of the Lord, and, and I, I can't really find any abiding peace and joy in my life. Here's my, here's my suggestion to you. Find some ways to love on others by serving them. And I promise you, if you'll do that, you will find the light beginning to illuminate in your life. You'll find peace and joy beginning to come into your heart if you will love others by serving them. And we know this is true from our own experiences. In fact, let me ask you a question. I want you to seriously answer this question in your mind. Who is the most loving person that you know? Think about it. Get the name in your, in your mind. Who is the most loving person that you know of? You got their name? You thinking about them? All right, now answer this question about the person you're thinking of. Answer this question. Is that person selfish or is that person a servant? Every single time you're thinking of a servant. Nobody said the most selfish person I know, that's the most loving person I know. No way. They might love themselves more than anybody, but they don't love anybody else. Because when you think of somebody who's loving, they are somebody who is a servant. And now knowing that that person is a servant, answer this question. Does that person seem to lack joy? The answer is going to be no. Now, it doesn't mean that their circumstances are happy. 
doesn't mean that their life is great. They might be in a really difficult circumstance. They, they may be enduring great hardship, but if they are serving others by loving them, there is a joy deep down in their soul. This is what Jesus promises us, that when we are willing to love and serve others, we will find joy. And by the way, this is exemplified in the life of Jesus as well. You know, the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter number 20 and verse 28 that Jesus says these words. He says, I came not to be served, but I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Here's what Jesus said. The reason I came into the world was to die for people, die for the world, die for sinners. This is my act of service. You may say, but pastor, I thought you said that serving others brings joy. And Jesus came to serve and they killed him. That doesn't sound like that suffering would produce joy, does it not? Listen to what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy, the what? Say it out loud with me. Who for the joy, one more time really loud, for the Looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. You see, when we serve others, it brings us joy. It did for Jesus. It still does for Jesus. Which leads me to my last point, since we're thinking about the cross, it is this greatest demonstration of love is the cross. I want you to jot that down somewhere. The greatest demonstration of love in all time is the cross of Jesus. Some of you are thinking, Pastor, you said a moment ago as you were beginning that the greatest demonstration of Jesus' love that he ever performed in his life on earth happened in the Garden of Gethsemane, not at the cross. That's absolutely correct. I want to show you how these two things go together. The greatest demonstration ever of love is the cross. Next Sunday, I'm praying that you're all going to be back next Sunday and that you will bring somebody with you to be sitting next to you next Sunday on all of our campuses. Because next Sunday, we are going to study about the crucifixion of Jesus. And we're going to learn what that crucifixion looked like, but I'm, I'm not going to do that today. I don't want to talk so much about the what of the crucifixion today as I want to talk about the why of the crucifixion. Go back to chapter 15 and verse number 12. Listen carefully to what Jesus says. Chapter 15, verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Verse 13, greater love has no man than this. Stop right there. Jesus says, I am loving you with the greatest possible love. And that greatest act of love is this. Greater love has no man than this that a man would lay down his life for his friends. The text does not say greater love has no man than this than a man would lay down his life. But the text says greater love has no man than this that a man would lay down his life for his friends. In other words, that he would die so that his friends might live. That he would sacrifice his life so that others would not be forced to lose their own lives. This reality of Jesus dying for his friends, Jesus dying for us, theologians call this uh, substitutionary atonement. 
It's this simple teaching that says our sins have been atoned for. We've been made in a right relationship with God because Jesus substituted himself for us. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man would substitute himself in death for his friends. Now hang with me for just a second. When you think about this idea of substitutionary atonement, here are the biblical truths that, that sort of outline it. Number one, if y'all are listening all campuses, shout amen. Number one biblical truth you must know, all people are sinners. Can we agree on that? There are no perfect people in the room. There are no perfect people on the earth. All people are sinners. We, that's not hard for us to admit. All people are sinners, as Romans chapter three says, for all have sinned, there's none righteous. That's truth number one. That truth leads to a second and disturbing truth for all of us because we're sinners. And that's from Romans 6.23 that says the wages of sin is death. You know what wages are? Wages are what you earn. The Bible says what you have earned for your sin, what I have earned for my sin is death. It's what we deserve. It's not mean. It's not unkind. God's not being unfair. We earned it. We've earned it with our disobedience and with our sin. So the Bible says that all men are sinners, all people are sinners, and sinners must die eternally because of their sin. These are two biblical truths. But there's a third biblical truth which intercepts those negative truths and brings us hope. And it's found in the most famous verse in all the Bible. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world of sinners that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, the wages of sin is death, but if you believe in Jesus, you will not die, but you will have everlasting life. Somebody shout amen. Praise God. Here's what this, these Bible realities tell us, that we are sinners, we should die, but God loves us, so he intervened in our sin to give us life instead of death. And that intervention came through the person in the work, the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. Now, this is what the Bible teaches. This is the gospel. Now, Christ came to intervene and bring dying sinners life. And the question then must be raised, how did that intervention occur? How did Jesus execute this intervention in order to bring us life eternally. I'm going to turn to 1 Peter, and I'm going to ask you to turn with me to 1 Peter. But listen, before you do, if you're a Christian, you're a student of the Bible, I hope you have a Bible with you, I want you to turn with me. But if you, if you are not a Christian, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, if you're not absolutely certain that you're going to heaven when you die, I mean, if you want to turn to 1 Peter with me, that's great, I hope you will. But if you just want to listen, just listen. I don't want you to, to miss what 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us. Listen carefully. Let me just read it to you. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 24 says this. Remember, this is how Jesus carried out God's intervention on our behalf. Verse number 24 of 1 Peter 2 says, speaking of Jesus, who his own self bear our sins in his own body, Upon the tree. The Bible says that when Jesus was crucified, he was bearing or carrying or wearing our sins. That's substitution. They weren't his sins, they were our sins. His, 
uh, body bore our sins on the tree, on the cross. Turn one page to 1 Peter chapter 3 and look at verse number 18. 1 Peter 3, 18. Peter says it again another way. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins. Not his own sins. He has no sins. He suffered for our sins. What did that look like? It was the just for the unjust. That he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh and quickened by the Spirit. Here's the substitution. Christ went to the cross and he took our sins upon himself so that he might take his righteousness and put it upon us. This is the act of substitutionary atonement. Paul says it a different way in 2 Corinthians 5 and 21. He says, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now here's the point, that Jesus is the one who came to demonstrate God's love by serving, and his service took him to the cross where he substituted himself for us. If y'all understand, say amen. amen. Now there's one other passage I want to show you before we wrap it up. It's an Old Testament passage which looks forward to what Christ did. Many of you will know it. It's Isaiah chapter 53. So why don't you turn there quickly. And again, if you don't know the Lord, I'm not so interested in your turning. I want you to listen. Listen to Isaiah chapter 53, verse number 11. Isaiah 53, verse 11 he, speaking of God, God shall see the travail of his soul, speaking of Jesus, he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant, if y'all are listening, shout amen, my righteous servant. Jesus came to be God's righteous servant to execute God's gracious intervention in the life of sinners who deserve death by switching places with us, taking our death and giving us his righteousness. Could it be any more clear? By this, right, by this work, this righteous servant will justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. Same thing Peter said, he bore our sins on the cross. Look at chapter 53 and verse five. But he was wounded for our transgressions. That's substitution. We should have been wounded for our transgressions, but he was instead. Verse number five, he was bruised or crushed for our iniquities. He substituted himself. We should have been crushed under God's wrath because they were our iniquities, not his, but he was crushed. He was uh, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. What would be required, the punishment that we might have peace with God rather than our being punished, he substituted himself and he was punished. And with his stripes, we are healed. Not our stripes. Should have been our stripes, but he took the stripes. Verse number six, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We're the wandering ones. We're the rebels. We're the rejectors. We're the deniers. We're the sinners. All of we have gone astray, but the Lord laid on him our iniquity. Do you see this? Substituting himself for us, God took your sin and mine, put those on Jesus, and Jesus paid for them 
when he went to the cross. Verse number 10, it pleased the Lord, and the Lord was pleased to bruise him instead of us. He has put him to grief instead of us. He has made his soul an offering for sin instead of our own. So listen carefully. According to Peter, according to Paul, according to John, according to Isaiah, and by the way, according to every other author of any of the 66 books that make up the Old and New Testaments, the greatest act of love and service ever seen on planet earth was when Jesus took our place. And so when and where and how did he take our place? Go back to John 15 to close. John 15 tells us that they have come to the garden of Gethsemane and Jesus has said to his disciples, I am showing you the greatest act of love because I am putting my place, I am dying for you, I'm substituting myself for you. Where are they? They're in the garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane is Gethsemanim. It means the place of the pressure, the place of the pressing. The Bible tells us in Matthew that when Jesus arrived at Gethsemane with his disciples, that he said to them, my soul is in anguish and torment. Pray with me. The Bible tells us that the torment, the anguish, the pressure on Jesus was so great that as he prayed, his sweat became great drops of blood. Such pressure in the place of the pressing in Gethsemane. God was pressing upon him. Those, that weight was pressing upon him. Jesus prayed under that pressure with his sweat becoming great drops of blood. And the Bible says in Matthew 26, 39, that he said this, going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus is begging, take the cup. Is there some other way? Take the cup. If I don't have to drink it, take the, take the cup from me and let there be some other way. But if there is no other way, I'll drink the cup. The pressure, the weight of drinking the cup. What was the cup? Some have speculated it was the cup of suffering. Jesus knew that in mere hours he would be beaten and he would wear a crown of thorns and, a, and he would be nailed to a cross and his hands and his feet and he would have a spear through his side and he was shrinking back from the suffering. I, I don't want to suffer like that and have that humiliation. I don't believe for a minute it was the cup of suffering. He came to die for us. I'm convinced the cup that he was drinking was the cup of your sin and my sin, the sin of all the world, as that sin that we bore was transferred willingly, servantly, sacrificially to him. And in the place of the pressing, the weight of your sin bore on Jesus. And the most loving thing that Jesus ever did for you or me or anybody else was to take our sin, to take our place. And the execution, the crucifixion, was simply the carrying out of the wrath of God upon the sin that he had already 
taken. The greatest act of love was Jesus took our place. I think I've told you this story before, and so forgive me for repeating myself, but you know the story perhaps of the general who was leading a great battalion of soldiers in a war many, many years ago in another part of the world. They were in the field and they were separated from supply lines and their their food supplies began to diminish until finally the general had to begin to ration the food so that it would last until the supply lines could be reestablished and they could have food again. And this didn't happen. The food supply kept shrinking and shrinking until he had to limit the food for his soldiers to just enough to keep them alive. Well, as they were all hungry and suffering, stealing of food became a real threat. It became apparent that someone was, in fact, in the night stealing food. And as a result of that, other soldiers didn't have enough to eat. The general knew that he had to stop that immediately. And he knew that he had to stop it by the threat of severe punishment. And so he pulled the entire battalion together and he said, you know we're on food rations and someone is stealing food. We will investigate and find out who is stealing the food. And when you are caught, you will be whipped with 40 lashes. Well, investigation happened. Several days passed. Food continued to disappear. One day the, the general was approached by one of his lieutenants who said to him, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is we've found the thief. The bad news is she is your mother. And everyone knew that this general would not have his own mother beaten. Yet he knew that if he didn't, he would have a mutiny on his hands. Everyone would steal food. And so he called for the punishment, brought his mother forth, put her to the whipping post, had her tied, his aged mother with her arms tied around the post, her back exposed, and the general said to the executioner, carry out the whipping. The executioner stepped forth and got ready, and just before he laid the first lash, the general said, halt! And he stopped, and every soldier said, I knew he couldn't do it. Until they were all amazed that this general then stepped forward, laid off his own shirt, stepped up behind his mother, put his left arm over her left arm, his right arm over her right arm, aligned his legs to cover the backs of her legs and covered her back with his torso and looked to the executioner and said, begin. And he took 40 lashes for his mother because he had to execute justice and yet he loved his mother. And he showed her mercy. Do you know that Jesus on the cross took your lashing, took your crucifixion, took your death? Because he's God and he must be just, but he's merciful and he loves you. And I want you to know him and be with him forever.